I'm going to start with some prayer. <laughs> wow. Lord, we just invite you to have your way with us. Every person in this room is living a different story. But each one of us, that story is an integral part of the overall picture, the big picture, the big puzzle. And Lord, as you fit us all together today, we just pray just a supernatural touch on each one of our hearts, our minds, Lord, our spirits. Draw us closer to you than we've ever been. And Lord, I pray this message would encourage, would build us up, and in the end, Lord, would just help us to be ready for that day that you come back for us. Lord, we love you and we commit this short message <laughs> into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. You notice the short part. Got a little chuckle. <clears throat> So today, I'm going to begin by examining the book of Matthew. Everybody say, Matthew. Matthew. Matthew, he's the man. And we're going to actually go to chapter 25 eventually. We'll get there, and we're going to talk about the story of the ten virgins. This passage, though, has much to offer for the modern church. Even though it was written two, over 2,000 years ago, or about 2,000 years ago, even though that's the case, it still applies to you and me today. First, how many are familiar with uh, the parable about the pearl of great price? I wanted to start there today, all right? I'm going to put this up behind me. The TNIV. You can read along if you'd like. Of course, this is Jesus, and he's trying to tell us something. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had, and he what? Bought it. What's he trying to tell us here? What do you think? What's that? Guess say it louder. I can't hear what you said, but what's more valuable than salvation? There you go. So, all right. The big question is, what's he talking about? Okay. All right. What was the treasure? Let's let's define it that way. Kingdom of heaven, right? Isn't that what he said? So just take it in the context it's in. The treasure is the kingdom of heaven. All right? Could, could it be that it also represents Jesus? Certainly. Jesus, kingdom of heaven, they're both the same thing. Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of heaven. And if you find it, what did he tell us to do? Sell it all. So you could get it all. You see, the thing is, we get stuck here on this planet, on this earth, in our little realm, and we start to think that stuff matters. These really cool jeans matter because they got crosses on the behind. <laughs> hey, these were expensive pants. I got them at a discount because I was a pastor, but for a normal guy, they would have been really expensive. But they mean nothing in the kingdom of heaven. Stuff doesn't matter, all right? Sure, it might make us a little more comfortable. Like, it's nice to have a box of Kleenex around once in a while when your nose starts to run. But that's just stuff. What matters the most, hopefully you see this, is the kingdom of God is Jesus. Does this make sense to you? What's the first commandment? Have no other gods. Love the Lord your God. All right? So do you think God wants us to have other gods? Isn't that pretty clear? In fact, what's he say? He actually tells us, I'm jealous of you. I mean, to hear God say that, that should mean something. I'm jealous. When I see you with somebody else, and I'm not talking about your spouse or your girlfriend or boyfriend. I don't know if you guys are a thing, but I think you are. 
I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when everything else means more to you than him. That's what I'm talking about. And that's when we get to our, our part today, Matthew 25 and the surrounding text, that's what you're going to see. God expects us to do what he wants us to do, which makes sense. Jesus came to show us how. The book of Matthew shows us how. And I'm going to talk about that for just a minute here. I believe that Matthew, and I'm giving you a little bit of background because I feel it's important, but the book of Matthew was actually written to the early church where I guess we, we would call it today a messianic church. All right, So they were Jewish, but they had become believers in Christ. And they were surrounded by people, Jewish people, who hadn't converted yet, who were really giving them a hard time. Imagine that, just for a minute. When Matthew wrote this book, he was trying to lay down some groundwork. And, and actually... Uh, many believe that when he wrote the book of Matthew, that it was intended as kind of a discipleship manual. Has anybody here ever gone through one of the, uh, what I would call a discipleship manual? Clarence, you and I went through one, didn't we? And it was really good. Did it make you a better man in Christ? Absolutely. Me too. And that's what this, was in, this book was intended to do. If you read this book from beginning to end, guess what? you're going to understand what God expects from those who want to be a part of his kingdom. That's what this manual does, if, if I can call it that, the gospel of Matthew. All right, so we see that these Jewish people were giving them a lot of flack. Now, how many are Pentecostal in this place? Anybody? Just a couple of you? So would you say, when we kind of line up with some of our brothers and sisters who aren't Pentecostal yet, would you say that sometimes there's, you feel that tension, right? And that's what it was like for them. Because the Jews were thinking, oh, they're going to they're come to their senses and come back. And the new Christians were thinking, oh, this is glorious. You need to come over here. You need to try on this Jesus. Because he is the Messiah. He will change your life. But they hadn't figured it out yet. So that's the tension that we're seeing in the early church. And that was the purpose of Matthew writing this book. So again, Matthew is a Jew. He was a Jewish man and he was writing to a Jewish audience. And that's important to understand because there are places where it almost appears like he left something out. But here's the thing. If you were writing to someone who already knew things, would you mention those things that they should already know? No. You wouldn't want to take that space up. And that's what he was doing when he wrote this book. So sometimes as you're reading Matthew, it might look like, oh, man, we're, what happened there? Well, he they, he, they expect you to know the Jewish traditions, the things that they would have done back then. All right? So don't feel like you, whoop, he missed something there. Uh-uh. He just skimmed over it, glossed over it, as you will, in order not to take up too much time. Are you still with me? All right. So I believe that this is a discipleship manual, and it's supposed to show us what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom. Now, the other thing that I wanted to point out was Matthew was a brilliant man. All right? In fact... It, it actually says this in one of the commentaries, the NICNT. It says that Matthew quoted the Old Testament with 54 direct quotes. And if that isn't enough, he also did a further 262 allusions or verbal parallels, meaning that he mentioned them in some way, shape, or form. Matthew knew the Bible. The Bible that they had then, okay? They didn't have the New Testament yet. That's what he was writing. <laughs> That's what the Gospel of Matthew starts, is the New Testament. He was familiar, though, 
very familiar with the Old Testament. Why is this important? Because it shows us that even the earliest leaders in the church believed in the Scriptures. So much so that they memorized them. How many would agree you don't quote what you don't believe? Could we say that safely? And so we see Matthew quoting the Old Testament over and over. And why did he quote it? Because it told us about someone. Who did it tell us about? God's Son. The Messiah. The Imago Dei. The image of God. And Jesus wanted you and me to be introduced to His heavenly Father and to the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew, this Jewish lover of God, tries in his own way to give us an example, a report, if you will, of the life of Jesus and what he said. That's what the book of Matthew contains. And I believe it's a pretty exciting book. Why should we quote Scripture, you and me? Let's separate from him just for a minute. Why? Anybody? Inspired Word of God. Do you believe that? What's another reason? Oh, there it is. There is power. There is power in the words of God. God said, my word will never return void. What does that mean? It will accomplish what it set out to do. Why is that important to us? Because when you get yourself in a pickle, in, in, a, in a situation you can't get out of in the norm, in the natural, you start quoting the Word. Now let me ask you this. If I just do this to the devil... Thank you. It's the spoken word. It's the spoken word of God. It's, it isn't. We can look at that all day. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. But until it comes off your tongue, they're just words. You're still with me? Good. I wanted to talk about this just briefly. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. You want to know how you're really made? Get the word in you. Because when you go to do that stupid thing, if you've got it up here, it's going to help you to make the right decisions, to make righteous decisions. If you don't have the Word of God in you, you are going to flounder. One of the guys in our church, and I didn't ask if I could pick him out, but brother, uh, brother over here, <laughs> Phil. Wow. Brother Phil, every time we have a meeting, a prayer meeting, he has got to. It's in him. He will be right at the end, ready to go home, and God will put it on his heart. you got to read this passage. And you know what? I, I often think in my spirit, Oh, really, Phil? And then he says it, and then I'm like, You know what? That's the Word of God. Spoken. And it does something. It's important to realize that this book, which Matthew helped to write, the Gospel of Matthew, this book will help change us and shape us and mold us into the men and women, boys and girls, that God wants us to be. But you've got to put it in to get it out. Hear me on this. Matthew spent a lot of his time doing some amazing things. One of the things he does well is he always tries to put things in threes or in sevens. Why does he do that? Because it's easier to memorize. And we'll get to that in just a minute. I'll show you a couple examples. It's easier to, to, to memorize it when 
It's divided up like that. Or if it rhymes, and he did that well too. However, in the translation from Greek to English, you don't get that translation. Let me ask you this. How did God create the heavens and the earth? Ah, I think we're on to something here. How did God create man, then woman? He spoke us into existence, formed us out of the ground, and then he breathed his life, giving breath into us, his spirit. And then he did something that he didn't do with any other animal. He gave us the ability to form a language. We're the only creature on this planet that has the ability to create language or to be linguistic. Think about that. Now a parrot can, can what? Parrot us. They can repeat certain words. But do they really understand it? No, they're just doing it to get another piece of cracker. You can train some animals to recognize certain words, but it's only because it rings a bell, gives them a banana or whatever it is, right? We are the only creatures that can form a language. In fact, I wanted to point this out in Genesis 2, 19 and 20. See what happens here. The Lord had formed out of the ground the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. So here we see the first evidence that, that man created a language. And what did, he, what did he do? He named all the animals. Have you ever thought, where was he going with aardvark? Duckbilled platypus, hippopotamus, what? I mean, for crying out loud, I guess cat and dog were taken, right? Adam had the ability to form language, and he did. And, and then he saw Eve, and the woohoo! Right? He probably couldn't form too many words there. He didn't need to. God made her to be loved, to be his helpmate, to, to uh, finish him, if you will. I don't mean finishing the last nail. In the, I mean complete. <laughs> Should have made that a little clearer. We're the only ones that have this ability to speak. All right? The only ones. We're the only ones that can understand the spoken word that God had penned in this book. What is this word supposed to do? What is it? Isn't it intended to guide us to him? To direct us to him? To show us what he's like? To draw us to him? Can we say that? Does the word of God draw us? The spirit draws us? The word draws us? We're the only ones. And when we communicate with God, how do we do that? Often. Prayer. What do we pray? With our mouth? Words? We speak it. Are you with me? Does this make sense? This is why it's so important to understand this. Because this is how God chose, has chosen to communicate with us. And it doesn't matter if you're French or German or Swiss or some African nation. God speaks your language. That's awesome. Hallelujah. God's words are truth. And we can rely on them. And aren't you glad that God told us to take dominion over the animals and over the earth and subdue it? Which means to what? Conquer it, right? Aren't you glad that the T-Rex wasn't given that opportunity? We would have been lunch instead of at the top of the food chain. 
Some people like to put us somewhere else, but that's not true. God created you and me, men, women, to be at the top. It's always been that way, and we've proven that. We run this, this planet. Maybe not so well sometimes, but that's, that's our job, part of it anyway. Hallelujah. Realize the word of God, especially the Gospel of Matthew. When he wrote this, they didn't have one of these on their nightstand or on their coffee table. They only had the verbal, the oral communication of it. And that's why it was so important that Matthew did what he did. That he did it in threes and sevens and fourteens. Numbers that people could easily memorize. But we have the Bible today. We're blessed beyond measure. And we need to use that book to improve who we are. Again, I said this once, but I'll say it again. What you put in is what you'll get out. What you put in is what you'll get out. So if you're not happy with who you are, put more of God's words in. Now another thing that I wanted you to see today before we get to our main text is that most agree that Matthew was divided into uh, five divisions or what the scholars call discourses. I've got these up behind me. I just broke them up so you could see them. Chapters 5 to 7 are the Sermon on the Mount, which includes, of course, the Beatitudes. Beautiful, beautiful part of Matthew's uh, overall gospel. Chapter 10 is the missionary discourse. That's where he sends everybody out. Uh, Chapter 13 is what they call the parabolic discourse. Chapter 18 is the discourse of the church. And then, and this is where we're going today, Chapters 23 to 25 is called the Olivet Discourse or the End Times Discourse. And we're going to see why that's called that in just a minute. The main theme that runs through the Gospel of Matthew is this. The kingdom of God is near. Say that with me. The kingdom of God is near. All right? So Jesus was saying this when he walked the earth, which was 2,000 years ago. So how many say it's been a while? Should we get frustrated and say, see, it didn't happen? How many would agree that the things that the Bible talks about are really, really, really coming true today? (laughs) I mean, man, we're in the midst of it. If they had seen what we're seeing today, they would have said the same thing we often say today. He could come back any minute, any second. Thank you. So, the main theme is the kingdom of God is near. In fact, in Matthew 4, 17, Jesus said, as he began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So here he is, walking along the streets, saying to people, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. What would that do for you? Would you? Maybe. Depends on what side of the street you live on, right? Not everybody was excited, as we're going to see here in just a minute. In fact, it's kind of surprising the ones that weren't. The ones that should have known better. The religious people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the legal scholars and the priests, who should have known what Jesus looked like. But in their heads and in their hearts, they pictured somebody completely different from who this man was. You see, they thought that when he came, he was going to bring with him an army and that they were going to conquer the earth and the world. I guess those are both the same thing. They weren't expecting this man, this humble man, From where? Nazareth. 
A carpenter's son? Really? Whatever became of a carpenter's son? Nobody great ever came from a carpenter. Can you hear the stories going around? Who is this dude? Yeah, but did you see what he did? What did he do? He healed somebody. What? Oh, I don't believe it. He did not. Can you see the, the, the tension? These religious people were saying, that's not Jesus. That's not God. He's just trying to bowl one over on you. I don't know what he's after, but he ain't, he ain't God's son. Uh-uh. Some listened, and some didn't. Some followed him. He said, hey, Peter, John, come on. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They hung their nets up and went with him. Had never met this guy according to Scripture, before. They just decided, you know what, that sounds good. I really didn't want to fish today anyway. Now, that wouldn't have been me. <laughs> I'm just telling you. He would have had a harder time. He would have had to have done one of the miracles right there. Well, he kind of did when he said, put the net over on the other side, which maybe that would have drawn me. Maybe that's what he did. Peter, watch this. Put it on the other side. Oh, come on, dude, I just did that. I was there fishing all night. Put it on the other side. I told you. And they did it. And what happened? It was so full of fish, the other guys had to come out from the shore and help them bring them in. How cool is that? All right. Now, either Peter's thinking at that point, all right, (laughs) this Jesus guy, he knows how to fish. He's got some methods I haven't seen yet, and I want to learn what they are. Maybe that's why he followed them. I don't know. Or maybe it really was the fact that he said, come on, I'm going to make you fishers of men. For whatever reason, though, they followed him. And they began to change the culture around them. Jesus was different. Way different than the religious people ever thought he would be. They didn't think he was God. That's for sure. And whenever Jesus said, I am... They're like, stone him, stone him, ah, blasphemy, blasphemy. Because they didn't get it. You see, their heart didn't connect with their head. And even though they supposedly knew the Word of God, they missed this. You know what that says to me? We can miss it too, if we're not careful. You and I can miss it. And listen, we don't want to miss it. When we get to the end, wherever that is for you and me, for some of us that may be on this earth, we may end when our heart gives out or whatever happens. Or it may be, and I think we're close enough, when we hear the and Jesus calls us up and we go home still alive but turned into our glorified bodies and then we're with him forever. Whichever way it goes, I believe it's coming soon. Now, some are going to hear this. I didn't know you. I didn't know you. Jesus, help us not to be that one. I didn't know you. All right, back to my message. The kingdom of God is near. We're in the fifth discourse, which is what? Chapters 23 to 25. How are we doing on time? All right, got a few minutes. This actually starts at chapter 23. However, I just want you to understand something that when Jesus got to this chapter, or what we call a chapter. He obviously didn't stop and go, oh, we're in chapter 23, okay, we're going to change now. It's just one of those normal divisions. But when he got here, he felt the need to call out these religious leaders. And he got really rough on them. I mean, go ahead, I'm not going to read that today. You can go back there and read it. But, I mean, he called them names. You whitewashed sepulchers. 
tombs. How, how many would like to be called that? And he went on to say a few other things. And honestly, I was trying to put myself in their place. I, I would have probably been angry if I'd heard some of the things Jesus said to them. And this wasn't, he didn't mince any words. He was really strict. Why? This is why. I'm, I'm actually going to read, I think. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm really getting ahead of myself. Ah. Really? I got to go back. Let me go back. What am I doing here? Hang on, I got to catch up. Apparently, I, I missed it in my notes. All right, here's what he did. He got to these, and he actually said, and this is called the woes, the seven woes. Everybody say seven woes. What I say about the number seven, why do you use that? Because it's easy to remember. And you can look this up in chapter 23 of Matthew. All right, he said this. He said, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who, excuse me, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. All right, why was Jesus so upset with these guys? Because they were teaching people false truths. They were not leading people to God, but away from Him. When we fall into that place, church, and we've done that. When we demand things of people that we should not demand, that's unscriptural because of our dogmatic stand, we're just like those guys. And do you know what we're going to hear if we're not careful? I didn't know you. You see, this book is talking to the church. You and me. This book, and most believe that Matthew wrote it for the Gentiles, even though Jesus said, I came for the Jews. Matthew wrote it for the Gentile. The church that was to come. And what we need to get from this, especially from chapter 23, is that God doesn't play around with people who aren't doing things His way. If you have a religious spirit, you're in danger. Just as these guys were. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Seven times, whoa, in their face, whoa. What you're doing is wrong. And this is what they were, hypocrites. That's a person who pretends to be somebody they're not. As I said, chapter 23 to 25, specifically, I believe the whole book is, but specifically, this fifth discourse, Matthew is telling us, the church, look, I'm not talking to the unchurched here. I'm talking to the people that are claiming to be believers. This is some of you. It's kind of scary. What does it say to us? What should we be doing with this this morning? Weighing it to make sure, God, is there stuff in me today that shouldn't be there? Am I misleading people? Telling them something that isn't even in your word? Or manipulating the Bible to say what I want it to say so that I can control others? Some of us are really good at that. Let that not be us. Let the Spirit of God drive us and guide us and show us the truth so that we can live the way Jesus wants us to live. Free in Him. Don't be a pretender. Be real with God. Amen? Chapter 24, Jesus shifts 
Now he's going to talk about what's coming in the future. He begins by discussing, and I believe there's a little bit of an allusion to his death, but then he talks about how the temple is going to be destroyed. And you know that happened in 70 A.D. All right? Completely leveled. Nothing left. It's not there anymore. So Jesus warned the people that when this happened, from there on, this is what's going to happen. There are going to be rumors of wars, earthquakes, things that nobody wants to see, but here they come. Typhoons, tsunamis. That was a word that we didn't even know back then. Comets hitting the planet. There's so many things coming against us. And here's what Jesus said. He said, when you see all this, this is the earth in the beginning stage of birth pains. How many moms do we have in here? Raise your hand. Did you know when it was starting? How? <laughs> Andy was telling me about, there's due, Sarah's due any day now. Andy was telling me the other day, he said she was standing up. How does that happen? So the baby's standing up inside of Sarah, and he started playing with her foot. He could feel it, and he tickled it, and she kicked his foot. Now, what do you think that does for Sarah? Uh, hello? That wasn't very nice of Andy, but he, he got the biggest chuckle out of that. You know when you're about to have a baby. That's just the process. And Jesus was saying, when, when the, all this starts, this is the beginning. Now, how many of you ladies had a really long labor? <laughs> how long? 16 plus? Anybody 20? Three and a half weeks of labor? God bless you, woman. My wife went, I think, uh, the first one, she went 24. They all got easier. Oh, hallelujah. The last one, Troy, almost came out without anything. That was scary, but <laughs> anyway. We know, because of the pain, that a baby is about to be born. And Jesus was saying, when you see all these things, know that the end is near. The end is near. And then he said this in uh, chapter 24, verse 36. He said, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Who knows when Jesus is coming back to get his church? The Father. So if somebody says, Hey, let's go up on the top of Mount Zig Ziggurat, and let's wait for Jesus, because he's coming tomorrow. What should you say to that person? Lies. Lies. Only one knows. The Father. Not even Jesus knows. Not even Jesus knows. And then Jesus said this, he said, But, when the Father has had enough, not necessarily enough, let me put that a different way. When the Father says it's time, they are coming. And it's not going to be a matter of weeks and months. It's going to be right now. That's where you see the surprise. Why? Because Jesus said this. Many Christians are going to be doing things they shouldn't be doing. They're going to think, oh, he's not coming back yet. But they're going to get surprised. It can happen at any second. We don't want to be that person. Then in verses 38 to 41, Jesus reveals how it's going to look. This is the first phase. When he comes back for us, and, and we call this the rapture, thank you. We believe in that. Premillennial, hopefully, but some of you are mid-trib, some of you, whatever. 
You want to go through it, then you believe that. I don't care. I'm believing he's coming before. This is one of the passages that I believe clearly says that because he, he actually does this 50-50 here. Where else did we see 50-50? How about the virgins? Half were wise, half were foolish. So here we see a 50-50, and Jesus said they're going to be out working in the field, and one is going to be, boo, taken. I can't do it. I wish I could. I wish I could just go now. That'd be awesome. You guys would be going, hey, wait a minute. No, no, I want you to go with me. The other one will be left behind. All right? He uses a couple examples there. You can read that on your own. One's going to be left. One's going to be taken. He's talking about the church. You and me. You still with me? All right. Then, in verse 42 to 44... A warning. Therefore, keep watch. What? Say it. Keep watch. keep watch. This is so important. Keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be... Has any, any of you guys, maybe ladies, any of you guys ever thought you heard something outside at night? What do you do? Do you just fall asleep? You get up and check it out. Or you lay there all night going, oh, I hear something again. Because you don't want to be broken into unaware. If they come in, you want to be prepared. Sick that vicious dog you have on them. Or your wife, whichever is. I'm not saying the wife is the dog. I didn't mean that. I'm saying she's tough. She's raw. She could, she could wrestle an alligator down. That's what I meant by that. Not, that wasn't an inference of anything negative. It was all positive. See where your minds go when you're not in the Word? All right. Back to the Word. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Can I say, warning, 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 Will Robinson. That's danger, I know, but warning sounds better in this, in this. I know that that's not what the Bible says, but that is what Jesus was saying to us. How many know God loves you? How many know He wants you to spend forever with Him in heaven? So He's asking us, do things the right way for 60, 70, 80 years if you live that long. And when it's time, I'm going to take you home to be with me and Dad forever. I want to tell you something. We get a glimpse of heaven, but we've got no idea what God has prepared for those who love Him. We've got no clue. But he spends pretty much the whole book of, of Matthew trying to, to get us to understand you can't live on the edge of your Christianity and expect to get in. You can't believe, okay, I got my ticket punched. I can do whatever I want until the day comes that he comes back for us and I'm going to go. Don't be deceived. Warning, warning, warning. Keep watch. Keep watch. Matthew 25. This leads up to this. Our key passage. Okay? Chapter 23, chapter 24. Now we're in chapter 25. And the... the fifth discourse ends at, actually it's the first verse of 26, but we're not going that far. Just understand that everything that's around our passage has to do with our passage. Are you with me there? At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins 
who took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Can you kind of see where this is going? How many years has it been since Jesus walked the earth? 2,000? Do you think anybody's fallen asleep? Some of us have. Now, here's, here's an important point that I'll make now. The sleeping has nothing to do with it, although some do say that we need to be alert. You know, we need to be prepared. We need to be awake. But they all fell asleep, the wise and foolish. So we know that that isn't what Jesus is trying to point out. All right? At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Hmm. But while they were on their way to, to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Uh-oh. Later, the others also came. Sir, 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 they said, open the door for us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, Jesus said, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. I want you to understand that when he began this, he used the phrase, at that time. Meaning that what followed, or I should say what came before, led up to this. And what came before? What was he talking about in chapter 24? His return, right? All right, so the, the ten virgins story, allegory as I call it, an allegory is something that, it's a story that has a hidden meaning in it. A parable is just a story that is intended to be, to, to relate us to something that we would understand. All right, so this is more of an allegory because we don't know everything about this. We don't even know... It doesn't even mention the bride for crying out loud. They're just virgins. And some have compared them to more of our maidens, maidens of honor, you know, bridesmaids, rather than virgins, than the sexual sense. It doesn't really matter, though. The fact is there were five who were wise, and there were five who were. And my question to you is, which one are you? Because this story is relating to us, you and me. People were falling asleep. People were thinking, oh, he hasn't come in 2,000 years. What do you make you think he's going to come tomorrow? And that's when Jesus said, that's when I'm coming, is when everybody is least expecting me. Which one are you, wise or foolish? Now, if we really want to understand the, the whole context of this, we have to go a little bit further in this chapter. And it'll make sense, hopefully, when I wrap it up. So now we know that this is a continuation of that last day moment, that surprise moment, and on that day and hour, the only one that knows when it's coming is the Father. But believe me, Jesus is waiting for him to say, go. Go get him. Hallelujah. And at that time, life is going to be going on like it always has. People are going to be doing what they always do. Marrying and giving in marriage, as Matthew 24, 38 said. Nobody's going to be thinking, ah, the end is almost here. John, are you ready? Maybe that's something we should be saying to people today. Are you ready? Sarah, are you ready? Cheryl Lynn, are you ready?
don't know. He's coming back. Hallelujah. It seems that many professing Christians have let their guard down and they've neglected to do the things that Jesus instructed them to do, instructed us to do. When we read these three chapters, we should be able to glean this from them. He's coming back. And there's going to be judgment. He's going to judge the church first. Scripture tells us that. And then later, all the rest of the people will be judged. We've been living in the age of grace for 2,000 years plus. Would you agree with that? Meaning that God sent His Son Jesus to show us the way to heaven. And if we believe in Him, our sins will be forgiven and we will be given new life. We'll be born again. If we don't believe then we'll just be like everybody else. But if we do, there's certain criteria that is expected of us. Now, hear me. I'm not saying that you're saved by works. You're saved by the grace of God. Your works mean nothing when it comes to your salvation. You want to get your heavenly ID? Believe in Jesus. All right? But that does not get you into heaven. There is a criteria that is expected of it. Well, Pastor Norm, where's that in the Bible? And I'm glad you asked. Because there is some things, there are some things that that are expected of the church. In the next passage, verses 14 to 30, Here the master leaves each of his, and I'm not going into this, you can read it later. He he goes into this detail about three servants. In my version, he calls it gold. Some of you say talent, whatever. It's talking about money. He gives them money. And he says, all right, here's the thing, guys. I am going to give this to you. One he gave five. One he gave two. And one he gave one. Whether it's pounds, thousands of dollars, it doesn't matter. What does that tell us? How do we relate that to me and you? What is that money representing? Gifts? What God's given you? Could we say everybody in this room has something from God? When you become born again, God gives you something to use to bring Him glory and praise and honor. Something in your life, whether it's, whether it's a talent or your resources, whatever it is. And God expects you to use it to His glory. So here we see these three servants, and He said, Alright, I'm going to go away for a while. It ends up being a long time. What happens when your boss leaves Michael, has this ever happened? Your boss takes off. Hey, I'm going to lunch. And then he doesn't come back for a while. Let's say he does. Just run with me. Yeah, he's gone for like three hours. You're like, dude. You're looking at your buddy. Hey, dude, man. Boss, uh, where'd he go? I don't know, man. He ain't come back yet. Hey, we should take another break. He's not here. I'm not saying you would do that because you wouldn't. You would be working extra hard because he's gone. I know that because I know you somewhat. These three had a choice. Spend my life for him or not. Be lazy. Sit back. Relax in the hammock. Until he comes back. How many know that when he comes back, it's going to be a surprise? surprise? And it was. The first one, he said, huh. What would you do with your money? And the man told him, or woman, 
Why, master, I doubled it. All right, so how many did he start with? How many does he have now? Ten. Ten. Right. And the one that had two? Double it. So now he has four. I did this for you, Lord. Here's the thing. God did not care which one had the most. All he cared about was that what they had, they used to his glory. You see, if, and he's given Clarence more talent than he's given me. If I got up on that base, you would run. And he's using that to his glory. And God's not going to come back and go, Norm, why didn't you learn the base? He doesn't care about that. What he cares about is what he's given you is what you use to his glory. The numbers don't matter. So just get that part out of your head. And then he gets to the one. I don't want to be this guy. Oh, Lord. I should have said this. Matthew 25, uh, you know, well done. That's what they heard. We all want to hear that, right? That's what we want to hear. But the third guy, his master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you know that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money, ha, hear that, my money on deposit with the bankers. And then when I returned, I would have at least received what? Interest. How simple. He didn't even do that. Lord, help us. Take the bag of gold from him. Give it to the one who has ten. For those who have will be given more, and they will have an abundance. As for those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just stand with me. I didn't say this when I started. If you haven't guessed this yet, I've got plenty more. But I don't think you want to be here till one o'clock today, so I'm going to go ahead and divide this into two. When I was praying this week, month, over this message, I really felt like there were people in this room. There are people online. Are we still online, Jen? There are people online today that you're struggling with this. And I'm going to talk more about this next week, but what I want you to get is this. God has given you something of value. It might be a personality that just charms people, and I mean that in a good way. I've been around some of you, and, and I get around you, and you just make us feel better. I love that about you. That's a gift from God. Because then there are those like me, who <laughs> we scare people off, you know? We're not as warm and fuzzy. I like to think he gave me one talent, and that is hopefully being able to speak the word. Whether you agree with that or not, it doesn't matter. What does matter is this. The ten virgins all started in the same place. They were all called, given the invitation to come to heaven forever. But for whatever reason, half of them chose to do it God's way, the other half chose to do it their way. Unlike Burger King, you can't have it your way. You can't. You either do it His way, we're commanded, we're demanded to do it His way, or you're going to hear that the infamous words, 
I didn't know you. Would you bow your heads with me? And if you're online, just ask the Lord, which one am I? And I would ask this audience, which one am I? Am I wise or am I foolish? And I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes I feel like I could be in either camp. I've got days where, yeah, I'm a wise Christian. But there are other days when I have to say, man, what a fool. And I know what the Bible says, don't call anyone foolish. But I'm just saying, sometimes I lose my marbles. And I don't do it God's way. The good news is, as long as I still have breath, as long as I'm still on this side of heaven, I can do one thing that will change it all again. And you know what that is? Repent. And Jesus said this, I started with it, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. So I'd ask everybody in here, and I'm not calling anybody out, every head bowed, eyes closed, and if, if you're watching this online, you ask the Lord, which one am I? If you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor Norm? I think I'm tending to lean the other way, toward the foolish one. And I really do want to make that change I want to be ready. I want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let that be me. If that's you, just raise your hand real quick so I can see it. Yep, hands going up. Thanks. Put them down. Yep, yep, you can put them down. And if you're online, again, I believe the Holy Spirit's already spoken to you. And if that's you, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to pray with me. Let's trust God. Can we do that? Let's trust God to intervene in this moment. If, he's, if, if we're still in the age of grace, which we are because he hasn't come back for us yet, if we're still in that age where he'll forgive us if we apply the blood of Christ to our sin, then let's just ask him to do that today. And then from this day forward, be wise. Make wise decisions. Get the word of God in you so you'll stop doing the stupid things that you shouldn't be doing. Would you pray this with me? And I'd ask all the believers here to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this strong message. And I want to be in the good camp. I want to be the wise one. So I ask you today, if I've been foolish, forgive me of my sins and wash me clean. Make me a new person. A wise person. And from this day forward, help me, Lord, to use everything you've given me. My time, my talent, my resources to bless your holy name. To see your kingdom advanced as only you can. Use me as only you can. I give you my life and all that I have, and all that I am, in Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Give God the glory today. Hey, listen. I hope it doesn't appear that I cut that short, because there's so much more to go with this, and I'm going to hammer the point next week. It gets even better, all right, if that's possible. We're not done yet. But I believe we're done here today. You've had enough. And now I will pray the benediction, which means you get to go home or to the bowling alley or wherever you're going next. Father God, again, we are humbled to be in your presence. I thank you for Brother Matthew who wrote a solid book, Lord, about you. And Lord, I thank you for the Word of God that as we apply it to our lives and our hearts and our minds and our families, and as we do, as we are doers of the Word, not just hearers, Lord, you can do miraculous, marvelous, wonderful things with us. Take this church, Lord. And I know there's just a small representation here today because of the winter storm. 
But Lord, I thank you for each one that was able to come and those who are listening online, Lord. Bless them in Jesus' name and help us, Lord, to reach the lost. Help us to be Jesus with skin on for those who need you most. Lord, keep us safe in our coming and our going. Loose angels around us. And we commit this church and our people into your hands. We love you. And until you come back for us, Lord, keep us strong. Keep us faithful. We pray this again in Jesus' name. And everybody said, God bless you. Hug on somebody's neck before you take off. Be warm. Start your cars. Get the ice off. Have a great week in Jesus.